Hey, welcome to church online and uh, wherever you are. If we don't know you, we'd love to get to know you. So please connect with us. Go to our website at kenmore.church. Click on the next steps launcher there, the yellow uh, circle with the white steps on there, and we'll get straight back to you. Uh, we'd love to just have a coffee and get to know your story a bit more. Let's have a look now at what's coming up at Kenmore Church this week. Our powerful formation courses are back after two disrupted years with a whole new vision for how you can take part. Starting with our brand new 7pm Sanctuary experience on Tuesday nights, you can then break out for your group time. We also will combine a shorter, cheaper and in-house weekend experience with a powerful Sunday evening service each quarter. For April, we are taking regos for two courses. Refresh is for those who want to go deeper in their engagement with the Holy Spirit and Reform is for those who know it's time to break through and grow in a particular area. Find out more at kenmore.church forward slash growth track or go to our events page. Alpha is preparing to run in April of this year. If you want to see others follow Jesus, contact Lani to join the Alpha team or be thinking about who you can invite. Easter at Kenmore Church is a great opportunity to invite your friends and family to hear the gospel message. Join us for a one-hour service on Good Friday the 15th of April at 9am and then again for Celebration Sunday on the 17th at 9am. The Sunday service will also include family activities and an Easter egg hunt for the kids. Can't wait to see you there. Kenmore's fortnightly women's lunch is on this Tuesday at 12 o'clock at One Table Cafe. This is a great opportunity to catch up with new and old friends over a delicious bite to eat. For more information and for lots of other connection opportunities, head to kenmore.church. For more information about anything that's happening at Kenmore Church, visit our website at kenmore.church or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. We hope you enjoy the service. So today is Palm Sunday, in some circles, Passion Sunday. The, the commencement of the Passion Week. This is the big week. This is the most important week in history that we're remembering and celebrating today. And Passion describes well what takes place in the heart of God through this week for humanity. Passion is just such an invoking word. And the emotion of God, the, 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 the sentiments that come out of Him, in, especially in this day on Palm Sunday, uh, are really telling in God's heart for us his people. Few other moments so clearly reflect the core agendas of God and it's contrasted so clearly against our agendas for him. But in the shadow of the cross we see clearly his motivation to get there. But before we go there can I ask you one question and as you're watching this online or wherever you are maybe reflect on this as we go on. But here's the question. What do you most want God to give you in life? What do you most want God to give you in life? Now, I know that's the wrong question. I know it, it, it rattles against the, the goodwill and the mindset of all of us because it really infers what's in it for me and all that. I, I get that. But at the end of the day, when you're praying, 
when you're seeking God for all the things in your life, there's normally a list of things that matter to us and obviously matter to him as well. What's on the top two or three of those things? What do you most want God to do in your life? So just indulge me and have a think about that because it, it pays just to be honest for a moment about that. Is it security and stability that you're after in your life? Uh, a better job, more money, a soulmate, proof that he's even real and can intervene in your life? It matters to you. And so, yes, it, it does matter to God. But I wonder if you've ever wondered, what does God most want for you? What does God want for me? What's most on his heart for us? Are they the same things? This one that we worship who can do anything and knows what I need for life, what does he want for me? Because it stands to reason he would move heaven and earth to provide that thing that's top of his agenda. Well, Passion Week, starting with Palm Sunday, makes this crystal clear, very clear. The manifested expressions of his passion all point towards his heart for us. And we can pick this up and we're going to follow along today the story of Palm Sunday in Luke 19, starting at verse 37. The context here is that he's on the way to Jerusalem, he's on the way to the cross, and his face is literally set like flint to get there. He knows what he's here for, he knows what he has to accomplish, and he's on his way. But tensions at this point in his life and history are at absolute breaking point. Uh, not just in the time, but in the place. He's heading towards Jerusalem, the center of the Hebrews and their religion, the politics, all the stuff that's going on. Rome is there, Herod is there, the Pharisees are there, and they're all looking out for Jesus. And yet he's coming at them headlong. Lazarus has just been raised from the dead. And there are plots that are going all around to kill this poor guy again, uh, and Jesus as well. It's just too provocative for them. They can't shut this movement down. And so it's all coming to a head. But this time, Jesus is not de-escalating the tension. Often you'd see in the previous few years, he would walk away. He would go and find a quiet place to be. Not this time. Now he's going at it. He's going headlong into this situation and he's raising the stakes day by day. And so he's doing it at the most provocative time of all, at Passover. He's coming into Jerusalem when the most people are there, when there's the most at stake, when uh, the Romans are most uh, fearful of trouble. And this public confrontation then is inevitable in this polarized and under-informed cauldron of who they think this Jesus is. So it begins about three kilometers out of Jerusalem at a place called the Mount of Olives. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, a whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in a loud voice, it says in the scripture, for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is a king who comes in the name of the Lord, they said, peace in heaven, glory in the highest. But some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Now, I've got one of these stones right here. This is one of the stones. This is a stone from the Mount of Olives. It was there that day. I had a friend of mine who was in Israel bring me a few of them back. I keep it on my desk at all times. It reminds me to keep uh, a, thankful and a, uh, a thankful heart and a big picture about life. It reminds me that no matter what else is happening, confusion, fear, whatever it is, good times or bad, we should always be in praise to God. Because if we don't praise, this very stone will ring out. I hope I never see the day where this thing has to, has to praise instead of me. So anyway, Jesus came into town uh, intentionally on a donkey, a humble yet still provocatively royal entrance. Uh, he could have come in if he was coming as a proclaimed royal uh, king of high esteem. He would have come in on a white horse. 
but he chose deliberately to come in as a king, but come in on a humble donkey. And he was fulfilling Zechariah 9, verse 9, where it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So he was fulfilling that prophecy at that moment. So, but what's interesting is he doesn't quell the praise. They're all grabbing palm leaves, which was the ceremony of the day, and shouting and screaming and rejoicing. And he doesn't quell that praise. He doesn't calm it down. He embraces the moment in this emotive celebration. He just embraces it. He said, this is fantastic. And it's almost, even in all his humility, he could embrace the praise that was coming at him in a way that said, this is right. This is the way it should be. Because in that moment, when he was coming into Jerusalem, things truly were as they should be. In the bigger scheme of things, there was still trouble. There was still Rome and Herod and all the things that were going wrong. None of that had changed. And yet in this moment, in the midst of all that chaos, was coming shalom, peace with God, peace with people, peace as things really should be. And so he was celebrating because in this moment, God was present with his people. This is his greatest priority. The people rejoice in that proximity and that hope. They've seen his miracles. They've felt his heart. They can't help but sing. And for Jesus too, it's a moment of unbridled joy. If they don't sing, he would say the rocks will. And these are really echoes of Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, where it talks about how God embraces. See, praise uh, and exaltation isn't quite the one-way street we think of it. It's, it's not just us exalting God. It's a bold, it's provocative to think of it, but God sings over us as well. It says in Zephaniah 3 that the Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He'll take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. As we rejoice to him with singing, he rejoices over us with singing. It's an incredible dynamic. And he's singing the potential of who, who we are. He's singing the greatness of, of this potential for shalom and so on. You see, God is an emotive personality. He's not the stoic, purely objective, uh, detached personality that some religions would make him out to be. And, you know, I believe God is at his most happy when he's with his people and they are with him. And so for Jesus in that moment, that's why he was just overwhelmed with the joy of that very moment in, in history. He doesn't need praise. He doesn't need that praise. He's not driven by ego. We need to praise because it's declare that which is true, to align with the created order of heaven make, that makes earth look more like heaven in that moment. To declare that Jesus is Lord and I am not. To know that he is worthy to be honoured. In that way, things truly are as they should be at any time. And when Jesus is honoured, blessing flows. It's the created order that when, then when we honour people appropriately, the blessing that comes from who they are automatically flows through to us. And the fruit of that, obviously, is the shalom that the Hebrews so long for in so many parts of their life. But when people demand explanation and agenda of God, it takes us out of that created order. It's like dishonor instead of honor. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 19 says, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. In other words, to quench the spirit means to not do that, to not give thanks in all circumstances, because God's will for us is to do that because it's an experience of shalom. And something wonderful unlocks 
when we lose the agendas of our life, the need for all the other things to be just right and the circumstances to be perfect and just commit to a simple praise. Heaven rejoices when earth rejoices as it should. And on Palm Sunday, we see the full expression of God's joy. The source of that joy, God is with his people and they are with him. Now, there's more expressions that we see in this short passage in uh, Luke chapter 19. And the next expression of God's heart could not be more different from the, ver the very verse before. It goes on to say, as he approached Jerusalem. So this is, we're talking minutes later. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it. So he's just gone from exulting and, and, and being in this environment of celebration where the rocks were going to sing out. And now he starts to weep. You think, what's with the personality change here? What's, what's going on here? What's changed? Well, what's changed is he's come down from the Mount of Olives and now right in front of his view is Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city of peace. That's what the name means. Jerusalem, the city of peace. And yet peace was the furthest thing from the experience of Jerusalem. And that peace, that shalom can only come when people embrace God and want to be in his presence. And, and now he's, he's just gone past those with the palm leaves. Now he's going into the city that's really in many ways just turned its back on him and on God. Why have God, they figured out, if he can just have religion instead? What if he can just have the temple and the financial system and the politics and, and all the rules and regulations? And God doesn't want any of it. He wants to relate and engage with his people closely. The contrast for Jesus of what could be against what was, was more than he could contain. And that word that's just so benignly translated as wept, it means more than just to shed a, a nice little light tear that we see these days. It means to mourn bitterly. It's a real gut-wrenching wailing out loud. He made a scene. He was beside himself, weeping. Something triggered when he saw that this city of peace was nothing like a city of peace. It wasn't the presence of the Romans. It wasn't the presence of Herod. It was the coldness of godless religion. It seems like a paradox, godless religion. But religion can so easily take the place of relationship. And all that Jesus wanted was humanity to be back into relationship with God. And so Jesus goes on in verse 44 to proclaim the inevitable judgment that's coming because it says you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And this is not a sadness at the world, but of those who claim to be God's people. This is a city that claims to be God's peace. Yet when Jesus is at the doorstep and the majority prefer to carry on, they're carrying on with the world's game, not carrying on with the agenda of Passover, where, they, where access to God was given. Now, even the religious leaders who knew the scripture the best were completely blind, either by choice or whatever it would be. In John 5, 39 to 40, Jesus says to these people, you know, you study the scriptures diligently. You know, you really spend a lot of time in this word of God because you think that in these scriptures, you'll have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. That's his, that's his desire. His desire isn't primarily we would have knowledge. His desire is that we would have life. He says you're reading to get knowledge, but you're lacking life. How can you go for one and refuse the other. Friends, Jesus weeps the loudest for those who know the most but engage with him the least. His desire is that you have life. He offers it. He could not have done any more to provide it and he mourns 
when we allow ourselves to put everything else first. See, God, by his very nature, can only be first. He's preeminent. He can't be second. It's just against who he is. He, it would be defying his own entity. He's preeminent. He can only be first. So Jesus has moved with joy when we put first things first. He's moved with grief when we choose every other thing despite our calling in life. And his heart is that we would be a city of peace, the new Jerusalem. His heart for you is that you would be at peace. And his heart breaks when we turn away and seek our peace from every other thing or need every other thing to be in line for us to have some sort of a false peace. But unlike our sadness, Jesus doesn't manipulate us through our sadness to make him happy. He still experiences right in the middle of that morning perfect peace. He still retained his own peace, regardless of our response to him. His mourning is from his desire that we would have peace. And we will never know the extent to which God longs for us to know that joy. Friends, will you turn today from demanding all the other things from life, from God, and find your true peace just in him? Lose the agenda. Lose all the agendas and find God fully because he's enough. You know, St. Augustine once said famously, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds itself in you. The text in Luke goes on. Uh, effectively, it goes to the next day. So Jesus has had a, a night now to, to settle in Jerusalem. And he then heads straight into the temple for the second time. And we see in scripture, he actually visits the temple in this way twice. The first time he actually whips and turns the table up, tables over. Uh, and the next time he does a very similar act this, uh, a couple of years later. See, this place, the temple, uh, was meant to be the pinnacle of dwelling with God. If you ever want to just be with God, this is the place to do it. He knew that ultimately the spirit within us would make us the temple. But at that time, he knew the seriousness uh, of this temple in Jerusalem. And we've seen that this is the issue that drives Jesus the most, this whole idea of dwelling with God. And so he heads to the temple where this is the place where this is supposed to happen. And he heads to the, to the court of the Gentiles, the outer court, where that's where they're allowed to go. And it carries on in Luke 19, verse 45, and it says, When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It's written, he said to them, My house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it into a den of robbers or a den of thieves. This is a place where Gentile believers could be close to God. They weren't allowed in the inner courts there. They were allowed in the outer place. And it, it had been retrofitted as a, a currency exchange and a market for sacrifices. So people didn't have to bring their own, they could buy one. And it says a den of robbers, so it means that there was extortion going on. They weren't just doing a, a fair trade. These guys were ripping people off uh, and doing it in the place where they were supposed to be meeting with God. There was exploitation and the priests themselves, the Pharisees too, were taking an illegal cut there. The whole system was corrupt. And Jesus was outraged. So we've seen his joy We've seen his grief. Now we just see righteous anger. And yet he didn't lose his temper. And he'd seen it before and he cleansed the temple early in his ministry. Uh, and this way he came back the next day. So he wasn't just reacting. He'd, he'd premeditated what he was doing. But let's look at the big point here. What's really going on? There was plenty of injustice going on everywhere at the time. Why did this get priority? Well, it's pure and simple. It says in Scripture that Jesus had zeal for the purity of the house of God. Psalm 69, 9 says, Zeal for your house 
will consume me. Why? Because the house of God is where, again, people meet with God. You look at all of the three emotions that we're talking about here, the joy, the mourning, and the anger. They're all sourced from the one thing, the whole concept of people having access to God. This had been the place in the temple set aside for God and his people to collide for prayer and communion and peace. And for Jesus, nothing should ever get in the way of that. So you can see the big point of Jesus' emotion on this day. His highest priority for him is you dwelling with him in proximity, with praise and with purity. He wants nothing more than for you to be one with God. He rejoiced when it happened. He mourns bitterly when it doesn't. And he's furious when anything got in the way to hamper that. Matthew 5, 8, Jesus says, you know, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. His greatest desire for you is that blessing. The offer is life. The life comes from being pure of heart and dwelling with God. You know, if this week of Easter is about one thing, it's that Jesus will do absolutely anything to reconnect you with God. Are we the ones lining up to praise? Uh, are the ones uh, who, who know him but turn away? Is that who we are? Are, are we the, like those people in Jerusalem? Are we the ones who put barriers up to others experiencing God? His desire is for us to meet him closely. And over the next two months at our church at Kenmore, we're providing many ways for you to connect deeply with God. It's his highest priority. Therefore, it's our highest priority. It's God's will for your life. And so if you're looking here, we'd pray that you would come and join us uh, over Easter and on the programs that we're running beyond that. And who do you know that needs to be invited, that's far from God, that's disillusioned, deconstructing, had enough of church life, uh, not seeing God the right way? Bring them along the church over this period. We have our Easter services where there'll uh, be an opportunity to give your heart to Christ. Following on from that, we have Alpha starting on on April 19. We have special nights set aside every Tuesday from April 19 called Sanctuary, where you can just come and worship and be ministered to in the Holy Spirit. We have from April 26, great intensive experiences and courses called Reform and Refresh, which will take you on a journey of dealing with your own thinking and ways and take you through experiences of engaging the grace of God in a whole new way. And then from April 24 at our church on Sundays, we're starting an exciting series for six weeks called Entheos with all these opportunities bundled into one. It's just going to be an exciting time for people who need to reset their life with God and return and reprioritize connecting with him fully. You know, in the light of all Jesus saw on Palm Sunday and the day that followed, he headed for the cross, the solution to all that had uh, incited these emotions. He paid the price for our sin so we could connect with God. And I pray that you would place your faith in him today as well. Let me pray for you now. Father, I pray for each one who's watching this online, listening on the podcast. Father, that their faith and their peace would be coming from a reliance completely on you, who you are and what you've done. The salvation that you gained on the cross where you paid the price for us, the price that we could never pay for ourselves. If there's anyone out there watching now, Lord, that is, has never placed their faith in you, will you give them the faith to do that right now? that they would set aside their own striving and place their faith in what you've done for them because Christianity is not what we do. It's about what you have done. So bless them with that faith and salvation in Jesus' name. Bless you now. Looking forward to seeing you in church soon.